Welcome to another episode of Querying the Air at 3CR with me, Sasha Sidek. Before I start, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which we transmit people-powered radio. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I also would like to pay my respect to our trans elders past and present. So up next, we hear from the No Police in Pride LGBTQ Community Forum held at the Hair Hall in Nam, Melbourne on last Thursday, 27th of October, 2022. Speakers featured include Frank Gaffa, Dylan O'Hara, Paul Kidd and facilitator Joshua Batch. Stay with us on 3CR, Querying the Air. I'd like to start off the event by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We are guests on the land of the Wurundjeri people where we are meeting tonight. And myself and Frank and everyone involved with No Police at Pride would like to pay our heartfelt regard to all of our elders, past and present. It's important to remember that even as queer, a lot of us are also settlers and we need to be critical and reflective about the position that we occupy, no pun intended, in a colonial system. These lands and waters were never lawfully ceded and the violence of colonisation is ongoing. Before we get stuck into discussion, I just want to give a brief summary of the campaign so far. So No Police at Pride has now been running for, I want to say, 10 months? 10, 10 months? Yes, never's nodding to me. So we started with an open letter from 120 prominent queer academics, writers, lawyers, activists, so on and so forth, and followed that up with a petition which garnered over a thousand signatures in less than, I want to say, three or four days. And we met with the CEO of Midsummer as well as Todd Fernando to discuss this issue. And we are now following it up with this little community forum. So without further ado, I would like to turn to our speakers and get them to introduce themselves, starting with Paul. Good evening, everyone. My name's Paul, Paul Kidd. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm a criminal defence lawyer. That's my day job, but I'm also a HIV activist for many years, an anti-criminalisation activist, both in the HIV space and for LGBTIQ communities, knowledge the traditional lands that we're meeting on tonight. Looking forward to the conversation. And Dylan next. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Dylan O'Hara. My pronouns are they and them. I'm a proud whore. Um, a, thank you, sex worker activist. I don't think I need to say that I'm trans because I've chosen to advertise it on my T-shirt. And, yeah, I guess I'm here in my capacity as a, yeah, as a sex worker's rights activist. I've been involved in the campaign to decriminalise sex work in Victoria for a number of years. And, yeah, I work for a, for Victoria's peer sex worker organisation as well. I'm here in a personal capacity. Cool. And Frank. And hi, everyone. I'm Frank. I'm a Wawan Radri man from New South Wales. Um, he, they, my pronouns. I'm one of the co-organisers of the campaign and I am a long-term community and higher education employment activist and just started a new job and I'd just like to say that I'm here in a personal capacity. Uh, many of you would know me as a union organiser. I'm no longer a union organiser. But yes, I started a new job so I just want to point out I'm here in complete, completely personal capacity. 
And on that note, I would like to point out for anyone who may be tuning into the live stream that, in fact, all of our speakers are here in a purely personal capacity only and are not representing any organisations that they may or may not work for. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Joshua Badge, and my pronouns are they, them, because I just realised that I did not introduce myself. And I, with Frank, am one of the organisers on No Police at Pride. So, without further ado, one of the things that was really interesting that came out of the data that the ABS collected during COVID, of all things, was that a really large percentage of LGBTQ people do not trust police. No further comment. I would like to know from our speakers why they think that is. Okay, so... I think that there are a number of reasons for that. And one of them is that, that a lot of our members of our community, including white cisgender people like me, have a historical experience of being targeted by police for their, for their LGBTIQ status. But also a huge number of people in our, our community have intersectional identities. So we have a lot of Indigenous queer people. We have a lot of queer people of colour. We have a lot of queer women and queer tra trans people make up our community. And these are all marginalised communities. Now, and even if you'd never have personally been, you know, experienced police targeting or profiling as a member of the community, I think every one of us has that historical understanding of it. I'm an older gay man and I came out at a time when being queer was illegal and I came out into a world where queer people were actively targeted and suspected by the police. Now, that's obviously changed a great deal over over the years and that's a wonderful thing but that historical experience the fact that some you know members of our community have been hanged for for the you know the crime of being themselves is something that we will carry with us as a community for a long long time and the police of course have been complicit in that they've often been the drivers of that. So I think that it's a multi-layered thing and I, I am not surprised that, the, that such a large number of, of people both in the ABS survey and the other surveys indicate you know, a, a level of disquiet around the police because that's what, what marginalised people experience as a general concept. Thank you, Paul. Dylan. I mean, I completely agree with all of that. And I guess from a sex worker perspective, I mean, I think there's one really obvious answer, which is that, you know, for many, many, many years, and in fact still currently in many cases, sex workers are criminalised in Victoria. The police have been and still are the regulators of our industry. But I say regulators intentionally because, you know, for other kinds of work, of course, the regulator is WorkSafe, for example, or things like that. But for sex workers, it's been the police. And for many sex workers, that will change in Victoria in the end of 2023. But for some sex workers, it will not, particularly street-based sex workers who will still be criminalised and therefore still have, yeah, still be being policed and targeted by police. So I feel like it, it it should be pretty obvious that if you are being policed aggressively, obviously you, you're not going to have a trusting relationship with police. I think it's important as well to recognise that sex workers are a really big part of, you know, of queer and trans communities, as are people who use drugs, you know, as are people uh, experiencing homelessness, you know, people subjected to border regimes. Yeah. I think also, you know, kind of to, to add to what, what Paul said about that kind of like, I guess, collective community consciousness. Yeah, sex workers, 
expect to be discriminated against by police, even if we haven't directly had those experiences ourselves, and particularly if we're yeah multiply oppressed or multiply you know criminalised. You know there there are huge barriers for sex workers who you know for those sex workers who do want to you know engage with police when they experience crimes, which is not all sex workers. There are huge barriers to doing that. I, I feel like it should be kind of obvious why many sex workers would feel uncomfortable around the police, but I guess if it was obvious, we wouldn't be. Yeah, wouldn't be having this discussion. Yeah. And Frank? Yeah, well, I don't really think I have to um, go too far back in time to explain why the Aboriginal community, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community has an issue with police. You know, we've, we've had an extremely hard couple of weeks as a community. I mean, the, the death of Cassius in Western Australia is absolutely disgraceful. And the fact that both the media and the police, the police commissioner in WA, have downplayed the aspects of racism that obviously contributed to that child's death is just unforgivable and, and a clear sign of the way that the colony sees black lives. If, if that child was a white child, the media attention and, and, and the response to that death would be much different and much, much more. And even the language, you know, the police commissioner, uh, the language they used, innocent victim, violent attack. You know, every victim of a violent attack is innocent. All violence should be completely condemned. And, and that sort of language delegitimizes Aboriginal victims. I mean, even uh, some of the language about being the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, this is, this is an Aboriginal child, 15 years old, who's living... Uh, living on land that was stolen from his people, you know, he'd won a NAIDOC award. This is this is this is a good kid, like all Aboriginal kids are. And you know, 20 years ago, I was I was his age, and I and I remember being a young Aboriginal kid and being terrified of similar things like that. But I could probably go through many many stories of my own of of violence, and it's just so despicable that police have no respect for for that, and it just. On that as well, you know, we've had a Four Corners report that was released this week where, you know, there is no organisation in this country collecting proper data on missing Aboriginal women. Over 300 missing Aboriginal women uh, since 2000 and just no data being collected by um, agencies. Amy Maguire, an Aboriginal journalist, has done quite a lot of research and work into this space and, you know, the only data we have is police data, which is incomplete and extremely inaccurate so so even the figure of you know i think it's 300 uh, in the teens 315 16 that's probably an undercount of, of the amount of aboriginal women that have gone missing in that time so i think you know uh, as an aboriginal queer person and somebody who has had quite violent interactions with police during my life i think it's pretty clear why um, aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community members would feel uncomfortable with police being involved in pride Thank you, Frank. That's a really tough act to, to follow. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, I don't know where to start when it comes to police data collecting methods, methods, quote unquote. Also, just last week, we had the report into LGBTIQ suicides in Victoria and the from, from the coroner's court. And the coroner also explained that the figure that appears in that report of the number of queer people who have committed suicide over the last 10 years is probably also an undercount because the police cannot be trusted to actually record that data when it happens. And that's the only data that we have. So thanks, Vic Paul. So Paul, earlier in your response, you alluded to the other survey, which I'm assuming was the Pride Lobby's survey from 
oh, I want to say 2020. Yeah, thank you. From 2020, which also, like the ABS data, found that queer people do not trust police and also suggested that when it comes to police being in our spaces, particularly pride, which is kind of the, the hot button issue, that report suggested that maybe one solution might be for police simply not to wear uniforms but to continue their participation as it currently exists. What do you think about that? No, fuck that. I want to I talk about who are we talking about when we talk about the police? My job brings me in contact with the police every single day. Uh, I work in a workplace where there are uniformed police every day. I chat to the police in the tea room while I'm making my cup of tea in the morning. What did you do on the weekend? You know, how's your family going? Blah, blah, blah. Right? And I meet, I've met hundreds, thousands probably of, of members of the Victorian police through my job and I would say that most of them are kind of okay. Some of them are really lovely. Some of them are really committed and genuinely kind of trying to make change in the organisation. Some of them are fucking assholes. Some of them are Nazis. There is no doubt that there is a huge spread of different kind of personalities and attitudes within that organisation. It's a very, very big organisation. So when we talk about should the police be at pride, it's not about the individuals. It's about the institution. It's about does that institution belong in our pride celebration? And that's the real question. So when you talk about police being uniformed or not uniformed, obviously there's a difference in that. Some people would be less confronted by police in T-shirts, probably matching T-shirts with the logo of a large, one of the big four banks probably on the back of the shirt. <laughs> but, but it doesn't change the fact that those are the cops marching together or walking together. And in fact, when the police were first participating as a group in Pride March in Victoria, they didn't wear uniforms. They didn't wear uniforms for the, for the first few years. So that doesn't solve the problem. Now, there are, if there are individual police who want to be in the Pride March, good on them. Let them march with the volleyball team that they're a member of. Let them march with the community organisation they volunteer with. Let them, let them march with the bank that they bank with it, if they like. Well, we'll have that whole conversation about corporations at Pride on a different night. That's a whole other forum. Give us a few more months. But when you have a large group of people who are identified as the police, that is something that makes our events less safe for our community. Some people will be more comfortable if they're, if, if they're not in uniform. Some people will be completely okay with them being in uniforms. Some people are, people are completely okay with, with how they are now and many people applaud the participation of the police. So, but the people we have to think about are the people who are right at the margin of that. The people for whom that makes a difference. The, the homeless transgender, Aboriginal, etc. The, the people who have experienced harm from the police for whom that is the red line that they can't come, come across. Those are the people who really need pride. Those are the people who need the experience of being with their community. The cops don't need that. So absolutely not of the view that, that changing their frocks makes any difference. Thank you. Dylan. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, my first thought is, well, the Sex Industry Coordination Unit in Victoria Police, who are responsible for regulating the sex industry, when they make routine visits 
to, to brothels in Victoria. As far as I'm aware, they don't wear uniforms, in my experience, and it doesn't somehow make them not police, and it doesn't mean that you're not having police come into your workplace. Sure, I think we all understand that, like, the, you know, the vision of police in full uniform, you know, is, you know, as Paul said, is, you know, more affecting for some of us, but... Again, this is about an institution. And, I mean, you know, I guess I want to clarify as well. It's always worth saying different, you know, different sex workers have different, you know, different feelings about the police. I'm not here to speak for all sex workers in Victoria. That's not possible. But, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't really think it makes a difference. And I think that I don't really have anything to add to what Paul said, except that I think it's just... Sorry, I just find it such a such a frustrating topic. I feel... I Why? feel Well... I feel like sometimes the place that this conversation gets to is kind of like people being upset about not being invited to like a high school birthday party. You know, it's not a social event. It's it's we're talking about, you know, the the enforcement arm of the state and, you know, individual queer and trans people, many of whom, you know, as as Paul said as well and as, as Frank said, are, you know, already criminalised, brutalised and, you know, harassed by the police on a regular basis. It, yeah, I, I just think the kind of the terms of the conversation need to be reset a little bit. Yeah, this isn't, this isn't different members of the queer community. This is an institution and, yeah, and community members. So I agree, just before we go to Frank, I agree, but I'm going to throw a curveball at you because okay. what, what police organisations love to say is that, but it is community though, because they're, they're, they're lesbian and gay officers who want to participate. So, you know, why are you getting in the way of them attending the, the teenage birthday party? Sure. I mean, look, you know, like Paul, I also, you know, in, in the course of various parts of my life, have had and have interactions with the police and as individual people, you know, different different members of the police, some of them are there because they believe that they are doing something helpful and they, they may be well-intended, you know, and obviously there are, you know, there are members of VicPol who are, are trying to address particular things and then there are people who are obviously not doing that. But, you know, I think, I think for members of the police who are themselves, you know, queer, again, I think it's about, you know, I like to think a lot in situations I'm in about what hat I'm wearing, you know, like... Tonight, as I've said, I'm, I'm speaking in a personal capacity and not wearing a particular organisational hat. Sometimes I'm doing things where I am wearing a hat. And I think that if one hat you wear in your life is being a police officer, you, you have to understand what that means. Thank you. For I don't know if that's a good response. No, to that's the an curveball. amazing response, and I really appreciated the way that you stretched the, the the party metaphor really to its limits. I'm getting a really wonderful image of Vic Pol officers running around with little party hats. Frank, I believe the original question is whether or not ununiformed officers at Pride is is good enough. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I'd I'd add to what Paul and Dylan have said is that when we're talking about the aesthetics of the police in Pride, when we're talking about what they're wearing, we're not talking about power. And this is really a conversation about power and the institutional power that police have over particular communities within the LGBTIQ plus community. And no matter, like, like Dylan said, you know, no matter what they're wearing, they're still coming into, into sex workers' places of work. They're still coming into Aboriginal communities. They're still, you know, at times raiding queer places over the last couple of years. They're still doing these things and it doesn't matter what they're wearing. They're using their power to oppress people and they're oppressing people that are part of our community. And so it, it doesn't matter. And we need to get back to having a conversation about that power dynamic and what that power means to particular people 
and how that excludes people from spaces because of the overpowering nature of that power. So, you know, again, I'll mention it so many times tonight and if you haven't donated to the fund that's being raised for Cassius's family, you should and I encourage everybody to do so. But, you know, we have young Aboriginal kids over the last couple of weeks and a, and a number of, you know, strong, mostly Aboriginal women all over social media have been talking about it the last couple of weeks. The stuff with Lydia Forbes has told them that, you know, if you're an Aboriginal person and you participate in public life, you're going to be scrutinised at a much higher level. And then now this week, you know, you're told as a young Aboriginal kid that you are not safe in public. And not only that, you're told by a police commissioner that, you know, we're going to have a debate about whether or not that sort of violence is, is racialized, And so when people like that, you know, the head of, of police organisations then send lower-rung police officers to places where people are meant to be safe and be involved in community, that's a power dynamic that you can't ignore and you can't cover up just because somebody puts on some short shorts and a, and a nice glittery tank top. They're still police and it just doesn't matter what they're wearing. Hi, my name is Bundalini, also known as Robbie Thorpe. I want to invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munwaro, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach, and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday the 10th of November, Arnie Alma Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munmaru, 6 to 8pm. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyondthebars. CR Community Radio, 855 AM. You're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, featuring the No Police and Pride LGBTQ Community Forum held at the Hair Hole in Nar Melbourne on the 27th of October 2022. Speakers featured include Frank Gaffer, Dylan O'Hara, Paul Kidd and facilitator Joshua Badge. Stay with us. So I think the the question in my mind off the back of all of those really fabulous answers is why do police want to be at Pride so badly? Does anyone want to take that question? Yeah. So why do police want to be in Pride? 
Because they seem to really want it, you know. Like, th th this is a perennial issue that happened. You know, we have this conversation every single year that Pride comes around and every single year the cops show up. And between you and me and the lamppost and this live stream, the police are not invited to attend. They they apply every year. So it's a very conscious decision that they make. They need to, you know, sit down and, and write a 10-page document about how they want to be there and why. So why is it? I, I think for police they know that they have an image problem in general within the community and participating in things like this is an easy option it's pink washing at its highest level you know they participate in the parade people who haven't had a bad interaction with police are glad to see police there people who have knowledge of historical injustices like paul mentioned earlier you know, they'll see police there and they'll perceive it as police correcting past wrongs and then it avoids doing the actual real work. So I think it's going back to power, it's quite powerful for police to be involved in Pride because it's a lot of good publicity for a very, very, very small investment from them. It doesn't really cost anything. Do you have to pay to be in the Pride? I don't know. I have no idea. No? Okay. Doesn't cost anything, good, my argument stands, but it, 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 it doesn't cost anything for them to be involved in the parade and they get a ton of good publicity. People who are on the fence about whether the police are good or not will see them and they'll think, oh, they're here, they love us again. You know, our oppressor is no longer our oppressor. So I think it's a real insidious, as I said, used to be a union organiser, love a good campaign, very, very smart tactic, but it's insidious and it's not actually fixing the endemic problems in community. Anything to add, Paul or Dylan? I think that uh, I absolutely agree with what Frank is saying, but I think there's, there is another dimension to it as well. The fact is that the police have changed over my lifetime. They are a different organisation and they are less homophobic, less transphobic, less racist, Less, less misogynistic than they once were. And I think that part of the driving force in the, in the various police forces in Australia, acknowledging that we have multiple police forces that march in pride as well, we have the federal police, we also have corrections who probably fit in the same basket. There's progress being made in, in those organisations and I do think that some people who have been driving that progress want to celebrate it. They want to be able to, 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 you know, to show publicly that the police are not as bad as they used to be. But that is a very blinkered way to look at the police because, again, it just ignores that historical association that they have and it simply, you simply can't erase that level of, of oppression with some rainbow badges and, you know, 20 years of, of, of engagement. You know, I do think it's a good thing that the police are are trying to be less homophobic and transphobic, etc. But I don't know if they can ever get there because of those intersectional issues in relation to marginalised queer and trans people that, that I spoke to before. I also do think... I do think that there's a, a completely blinkered attitude as to the community's views about their participation. The forum that was held at the Pride Centre last December 
it was an incredibly badly run event in which people were not allowed to ask questions from the floor. It was completely stage managed. It was awful. But but the question was raised about the fact that that the queer community, many many people, a majority of people in the queer community, don't want them there, and they just and their answer to that was, well, we're allowed to, so we're going to, and that's real. I think, potent example of the attitude the police have and their accustomed understanding of themselves as naturally and properly having power over us and being able to decide for themselves what they're going to do. So that, you know, that, that failure to even engage with the fact that, that, that the community doesn't want them there really, really makes, makes, in my mind, it puts a bit of taste in my mouth and really underlines the fact that they don't belong there. It's a kind of like self-fulfilling sort of loop or prophecy or whatever the term is right as well because when the police are present at these things, it impacts who is able to be there. You know, that's, that's true of public events like Pride. It was certainly true of that, what was it called, town hall, I believe. So I suppose it's also quite easy to say, well, it doesn't seem like anyone has a problem with us being here if you've excluded, but by just being present, you've excluded most of the people who would have an issue with you being there. So just, just for context, because obviously on the stage was, was present at the town hall, but the, the audience wasn't. Um, sure. So at the town hall, I, if I recall correctly, there was no less than five uniformed officers who More. were armed, maybe even six. Yeah, who, who, More, who, because not... there, were senior, there were senior police there, so there's always a large armed presence. Yeah, like, so yeah. it had a bunch of armed cops in the room, not including the cops who were on the panel. So there was a very large number of them in the room. And then they were looking around being like, like oh, every, everyone's okay with us being here. And it's just like, really? So I think a bunch of us tweeted about this at the time, but they just superimposed the Victoria Police logo over the Pride flag and thought that that was, <laughs> and thought that that was the best way to, to engage with us. They um, bastardised our flag. As if the flag needs anything else on it, least of all that. So I guess we've kind of, we've kind of moved into talking about kind of like a broader police engagement. I'm going to use the word engagement with our community. And the, the thing that Vic Paul in particular loves to talk about is the liaison officers. And I, I, I just wonder if any of you have any view on the nature of liaison officers and, and, and what they do and, and why they're necessary. Frank, do, do you want to go first? So I, I think I'll start off by saying, you know, like, like Paul mentioned, I think probably these people who are in these positions are extremely well-meaning and they've joined the police force with the idea that, you know, as, as, as queer people within the police force, they can make a real difference and they've taken up these positions because they actually want to improve, improve the relationship with community. But again, I think for some people that works and mostly for, you know, white cisgendered men and other people who probably don't currently have as many inter bad interactions with police because obviously historically it didn't matter what your race was if you were queer the police were quite violent towards the community even now the police can be quite violent to anyone in the community but I, I think it it suits a subset of the community that has power to change the conversation and so, again, I think it's quite a smart move by police in general as an organisation to invest in these things because it changes the minds of the people 
who have power to change the conversation. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm in two minds about it because, you know, I'd rather there be much less policing or no policing, but in a state where you have policing, those particular positions do improve things slightly. But I think overall, this sort of propaganda nature of having those positions, again, diverts us from having a conversation about power and um, reducing the amount of resources that are given to police and moving things that should be dealt with by other sectors of the community, like, you know, mental health call-outs, you know, that police go to that should have social workers or people within those industries going along to them. You know, it, it diverts us from that conversation because, you know, we have, we have the liaison officers, so they're the ones who deal with that particular issue when it should actually just be outside of the police entirely. So... Just before we go to one of our other speakers, I see a hand up. We will get to questions and very brief comments shortly. So if you want to just pop your hand down and we, I will ask you first, Dylan or Paul? Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much just agree with Frank. I mean, I'm also of, of two minds about it. And I guess I think that, again, to kind of, you know, speak from a sex worker perspective, I think that certainly there are some sex workers who want you know, sex worker liaison officers and things like that. And there are some sex workers who absolutely don't want that. I think <laughs> the question as to whether that helps or not, I mean, you know, I, I know we've talked before about a study that came out in, in 2021 that was a, a collaborative um, piece of, of research between UNSW, QUT and Scarlet Alliance, the Australian Sex Workers Association, which is the national peak body for, for peer sex worker organisations and also individual sex workers in, in so-called Australia. And, and that article was called, I wouldn't call the cops if I was being bashed to death, sex work, horse stigma and the criminal legal system. And that's a, a direct quote from one of the participants in the research. Participants in the research were sex workers from different parts of, of sex worker communities, including migrant sex workers as well. And now, you know, is... <laughs> Is that the feeling that every single sex worker has? No, I'm sure it's not. But it's also not an outlier opinion. And does, you know, do dedicated liaison officers necessarily change that experience, particularly for the people who are the most criminalised and, you know, the most oppressed, the most subject to, you know, colonial violence, to transphobic and I think particularly transmisogynistic, you know, state violence and interpersonal violence? I... I don't know that it does, but yeah, I guess also like Frank, I, I yeah, I acknowledge that. I don't know. Maybe it's better than nothing. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's cold comfort, right? Yeah, look, I think the, the existence of the glows, the existence of that gay and lesbian liaison, that, that really needs a brand refresh because bisexual people exist. Newsflash: so do trans people, and so do many other members of our community. But the gay and lesbian liaison officers have they? They, they have, in fact. They spent a good, I don't know, like two years debating what they would change the name to, and they are just... Glows. Glows, yeah. Oh, LLOs, LLOs. Okay, thank you. Well, well done. LGBTIQ liaison officers, is that it now? Okay, good. Good for them. Anyway. <laughs> back, to, back to my point. Back to me. The, the existence of that program, the fact that that was established, and they've been around for a good 20, 25 years now, that is unambiguously a good thing. That is a very significant improvement in the way that the police operate. Many of those people are great. They're, they're mostly queer people, I think. Probably a few straight allies in there as well, I'm not sure. But they, I'm sure they, no question in my mind that that's a good program. 
But part of what they do is community relations. That's a key part of their role. And that is about building consent for the existence of the police and the use of force against communities within our community. It's about bringing us into the tent and making us feel like, well, the police are there to protect us and will respect us which they should, but also it ignores the fact that there are still people outside the tent. And some of those people are members of our community and even the, even the, even the ones who are outside the tent who are not members of our community, we as a, as a queer community committed to the liberation of our society ought to be pushing for broader social change than just inclusion. So good on, good on all those people, great program. I was in a meeting just yesterday with a very senior police officer who had a rainbow lanyard and he, he had a badge that had that flag with the thing on it. Slay. <laughs> I kind of wanted to rip it off and destroy it somehow but I would have been manhandled to the ground in not the hot way. That, as I said before, you know, the, the progress that's been made is, is it's good. We shouldn't be, we're not here to say the police are inherently terrible or that they're just as terrible as they've always been. The question here, well, the, the, quest, the question that we're, we're here to talk about tonight is about their participation in, in Pride. Thank you. I, I've, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this question. I'm going to ask a really big question before we go to questions and comments, which, so the first one is kind of on that point, you know, what, what is the future of Pride and, you know, in relation to, to police, like, you know, where, where is this headed and, and what work do we need to do? And that's, that's not the big, the big part. And the big part of the, the question is, and, and what's the future of the police and policing? And, and where do we need to go with that? I am going to direct this question to Frank first. Sorry. So the question is about pride and then yes. policing more generally. Yes. Okay. All right. Let me have a think. Like I took a sip of water. So I think when we're talking about pride, I think the future is for police as an institution to not be participating, in my view. Police as community members, as, as human beings, you know, they can participate, uh, like, like Paul said, you know, they can participate in, in, a in the volleyball float or whatever. They, they have other things. I probably wouldn't participate with my employer, so I don't really get the, the, the need to participate with your employer and have that as your entire identity. And I think that stuff in general is just a bit odd. But, yeah, I think future of pride is that, you know, police as an institution shouldn't be involved and that we should be returning to more conversations around protest rather than what it is generally turned into, which is more a celebration. You know, celebration has its place and I think it's important to celebrate where we've, where, where we've come from or where we are now, but, you know, there, there are still things that need to be raised and when we have the spotlight on us and uh, so much sort of media attention at particular times of year like Pride, we should be taking advantage of that attention and using it for political means. Policing in general, well, you know, there's plenty of scholars who have done a lot of research around the fact that inherently policing as an institution is is racist and, and it's been racist from the moment that policing was formed and, and, and 
in things like the legislation that was written and the legislation that's enacted by parliaments has racial tones and 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 is clearly racialized to disproportionately put in jail people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, from trans communities, from queer communities in general over time. And so I think, is there a place for police as an institution in the future? I don't think so. And what that looks like I think things like we talked about before about you know this police trying to divert the conversation or people in power trying to trying to divert the conversation that stops us from having a conversation about what society looks like without a violent institution policing our actions and our movements excellent Dylan it is a big question I mean when I think about pride I mean you know as as you just said Frank I you know I it is a space where it should be about protest. I would like to see Pride be about, you know, like concrete demands, you know, the full decriminalisation of sex work, you know, like drug decriminalisation and safe supply, you know, decolonisation in a, in a meaningful sense, you know, trans liberation. I, I think that's what Pride should be for. And I, I don't think that, you know, personally, and I respect the views of, you know, other people within my communities, but personally, I don't think that the police as an institution have a role in that. Like others have said here, I don't, you know, no issue personally with police individually attending in their own time if they want to. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the police as an institution. And I think we have to keep the focus on the institution. And I mean, it's I'm thinking as well about, you know, a lot of the comments that, you know, everyone's made about power. And I'm really conscious of actually really feeling, feeling that power that's wielded because of the fear I feel even speaking in a personal capacity for the potential for things that I say and others say to be, you know, weaponized against me and others and other people in my community. I think that's kind of quite telling. And, you know, as to the as to the future of, of, of the police, yeah, I have I have I have nothing to say except that I completely agree with Frank. So I'll pass on to Paul. The future of Pride. I went to my first Pride march. It was the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras, because I used to live in Sydney. Don't hate me. <laughs> I went to my first Mardi Gras in 1984 when I was 19 years old. I think it's before a lot of people in this room were born. But so settle around, kids, while I tell you a story. <laughs> I went. To, so I went to my first Pride Pride march. There were cops there. They were not in in the the march. They were there at the march, policing the march. This was just seven years after that. The you know famous first Mardi Gras that fifty three people were arrested in. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, featuring the No Police and Pride LGBTQ Community Forum held at the Hair Hole in Nar Melbourne on the 27th of October 2022. Speakers featured include Frank Gaffer, Dylan O'Hara, Paul Kidd and facilitator Joshua Badge. Stay with us. Just before you continue, I will point out that, in fact, not even a few years ago, police were still policing Mardi Gras and pulling protesters and activists out of it. Absolutely, absolutely. They're doing it now at the request of the organisers rather than, than, than off their own bat. But look, you know, for me, as a, as a really young, just coming out or not even come out yet queer person in a, in a state where it was still illegal to be gay, that was an incredibly important experience for me. It was incredibly important for me to discover that there are queer people who are proud of who they are, who celebrate their culture, who, who know that there are these depths to it and these layers to it that you don't know. You, you, you know, most, most people, a lot, lot of people coming out think they're the only queer person in the world and, and when you discover that you're part of a much bigger community, that's the power. That's the power of that event, okay? Now, that's a long time ago. Now, we come forward over a long period of time to the present day where a lot of our pride marches, not, not, not just here in Melbourne, but all around the world, are now huge, glittering spectacles. They're televised. They're, they, they attract massive crowds and they attract a lot of corporations and a lot of organisations that want to present themselves as being queer-friendly. And increasingly those pride marches are turning away from gra- grassroots community organisations. That is massively happening in Sydney where a, you know, a lot of, of queer organisations now can't even get into the Mardi Gras parade. Even though the Mardi Gras parade is going back to being a street parade, it's, it's shut off a lot of, a lot of queer organisations. And instead you have corporations and you have big institutions that are there to, to pinkwash and to, and to display their LGBT. LGBT credentials. But the other thing that's happening and that's really important is that there is a movement against that around the world. In 2019, I was very lucky to be in New York for Pride Week for the 50th anniversary of of Stonewall and I was part of the, the Reclaim Pride March. So New York now has two completely separate Pride events that happen on the same day. I was so incredibly proud to walk down the streets of New York with 40,000 other people and that was in the alternative Pride March. That 40,000 people who were there to say no cops at Pride, no corporations at Pride, no carceral systems at Pride and welcoming alternative people. That's happening there. That's happening in Paris. That's happening in London. There are movements and, and changes happening around the world. So if, if we're talking about the future of Pride in Melbourne, in Victoria, we need to be thinking about where do we sit in that global movement that is about reclaiming our events because there are still queer and trans people who are coming to Pride for the very first time and they are discovering their community and they're having that same experience that I had when I was 19 years old and they are discovering that they're part of something bigger and we want them to see that they're part of something wonderful, not just a product. But before you pass the mic away, you didn't answer the second part of my question, which is, and so... Whence police and policing? I, I feel like I've I made, I made it clear that I'm not in favour of the police being there. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, more generally outside of Pride, what, what is the future of police and policing? Well, I think we are stuck with the police, at least for the time being, and that 
is a problem. I'm a criminal defence lawyer and my job brings me in contact with the police as I said before but I also get to see a lot, I, I watch, I spend a lot of my days watching body-worn camera footage because I've got clients who've been arrested and I need to, you know, see the, the experience. So I, I actually get to see a lot of quite confronting footage. It's confronting sometimes because people are doing terrible things and the police are trying to do their job and bring that under control. It's confronting because people are very, very mentally unwell or, or very badly drug-affected at times. But it's also confronting because you see, I get to see the police at work, you know, on the streets, at night, arresting my client, talking to talking to people, illegally searching people, illegally stopping people. I do that all the time and I deal with, deal with that. So I'm very, very conscious of the incredibly complex relationship that the police have to the society that we live in. I'm also committed to queer liberation and I'm committed to, to, to liberation of our society overall and we need to be moving towards a society where the police aren't needed. What we have instead is we have an organisation that has an annual budget of $4 billion who are incredibly politically powerful, who are very, very geared to getting themselves more money, bigger guns, different equipment and they do that through an incredibly sophisticated process of political lobbying and they have amazing political power and part of what they do is that they manufacture consent for themselves by continuing to present themselves as the front line against some mysterious mist of danger and trouble that society will be overtaken by if the police aren't there. There is an alternative for the world but it is far away from us at the moment but we need to be moving towards a world in which either the police don't need to exist or they operate in a way that is really radically different. Awesome. Thank you so much Paul and thank you to all of our speakers. We're now going to very smoothly transition to the Q&A segment of our event. Yes, I see a whole bunch of hands. Hello. I don't necessarily want to direct the conversation back to this topic, but I just had a comment that the LGBTIQ liaison officers, from my understanding, don't have to be members of the community. Just put their hand up at their local station and say, I would like to do that, and don't necessarily receive any training for that either, as, as, as in terms of informing that. Uh, yes, absolutely. So Vicpol likes to tout that there's, I don't know, three, I think they're saying 300 at the moment, but in fact, to to be a, a liaison officer, you, you don't need to be a community member and to, to become one, you do an hour of optional training and that's it. It's also, it's, 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 it's also on top of their actual duties, so they often do it, you know, kind of on the side. At the last time I checked, because Vic Paul doesn't publicise this, but the last time I was aware there was in fact only two paid liaison officers in the whole of Victoria. Vic Paul employs 22,000 people. To the next question, I'm just going to go here. Thank you. I think a lot of this conversation has kind of been pandering around the idea that some cops are nice and there are some queer cops and they want to give back to the community but they've nonetheless chosen to do that by picking up a gun and work in an organization that is famously queerphobic, racist, misogynistic, like get a different job if you want to help your community there are so many ways to do that and this is going to turn into a question I promise. <laughs> I think Paul one of the last things you said there was about manufacturing consent through creating a big bad and I think part of the reason the police are problematic at Pride is that often they use the queer community to manufacture a big bad and so like how do we strike this balance between having a conversation that's genuinely rooted in talking about power 
and not feeding into that idea that we are a big bad and making this situation difficult and like being the nasty people who want to exclude people who've chosen to be in this terrible institution. Very good question. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think, yeah, I, I, I think, I think, like I said, for our tonight, we need we need to reposition the conversation to a conversation around the power that police have, and to not be focusing on all the sort of window dressing that sort of Vic Pole and the government invest in correcting or trying to correct their image. How we do that, I'm not I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Maybe the two other panelists do. But one of the things I would say, and maybe this is because I I have a sociology background is that there are people who get caught up by the propaganda. And so, you know, I I personally have a problem with just blanketly saying that all individuals who are involved in the police are inherently bad. What they do is bad and what they participate in is bad. And the fact that they're involved in the police force and they most definitely have knowledge of what their colleagues do on the ground is bad. But the way that they get there and they get into positions of, of, of becoming police officers, that's designed by the state. And the state spends quite a lot of money. You know, you can, you can look up quite a lot of research around the amount that police in the US spend in Hollywood and on, on TV to socialise people into thinking that policing is the greater good and that there's no alternative. And so people people do, I think, generally get involved. You know, like I'm, I have to bring up motorsport once, once every event. But I'm a massive motorsport fan and the police, armed forces, the ADF, the Navy, the Air Force, they all attend motorsport and similar sporting events because they have tons of internal research that tells them that targeting particular communities with propaganda will increase the amount of people that they can hire. And so they're, they're quite targeted in the sort of people that they hire. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's extremely complex and there's not really an answer, but I have a bit of a rant. But I think the answer is we have to reposition the conversation and we have to take the conversation out of the police's hands because at the moment the, the police continue to try and lead the conversation like they did with the town hall in December. Yeah, I mean, I don't look. I don't think I have an, a, a good answer to the question either. But I agree that it's about actually just taking control of the conversation. I mean, I think there's something here about respectability politics, and I guess you know, like, I guess as someone who you know moves through the world with plenty of privilege in many ways, and then in certain part, you know, in certain elements of my life and my identity, so sex work, being trans, things like that, I then abruptly, you know, step out of that. And I think something that I've learned from from, from the sex worker rights movement and particularly from black sex workers, from sex workers who use drugs, particularly sex workers who are injecting drug users, from sex workers living with HIV, from, yeah, from sex workers who are part of trans liberation, is that, you know, speaking here, I guess, kind of in a niche way about sex work, ultimately we're always whores. In the, in the eyes of the state and the general public. We can try to make ourselves respectable as much as we like. Some of us can get a lot further you know, with that than others based on class and whiteness and all kinds of things. But ultimately, you know, uh, at, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all hookers and always reminded of that. And, and I kind of think that that's something that, you know, I'm gonna say it in quotation marks, the queer community, if such a thing exists, I actually think could learn a lot from, you know, other intersecting communities that have had no choice but to be aware of those kinds of realities. And, and to me, that's how we advance it, is we have our own conversation about it, as, as Frank said, and we don't try to actually put it within those terms. And look, I mean, I, I understand 
I guess I, I hear where you're coming from about this idea of pandering, but to me there is actually a power in, you know, I'm probably just going to repeat what you just said, Frank, but in less articulately, but in, I guess, in acknowledging that, you know, becoming a member of the, the police is a choice, continuing to be in the police is a choice. I think it's like how we talk about, you know, I don't know, people who commit acts of sexual violence. If we make it about someone being inherently a bad person, we, we actually kind of are letting people off the hook. It's a choice. And, you know, in this case, we're talking about an institution. We're talking about structures. I think, yeah, again, just to, to badly repeat what Frank said, I really think that's where we need to locate the conversation. And I don't think it matters if people think we're mean queers excluding people. I think that's fine. I'll be real quick and then we can move on to the next question. Really respect the point of view of the question. I think you're, you know, I do strongly respect it. I know that there are, yeah, I agree, I agree with what you're saying. In terms of what we need to do, we need to be having a big conversation about the role of the police in our society as well as these smaller conversations about things like should the police be at the Pride March. As a society, we need to really ask ourselves why we use the police for, the, for some of the things we use them for. Because right now, there are floods. We send the police. For the last few years, there's a pandemic. What do we do? We send the police. There's family violence. We send the police. There's a someone having a mental health episode. We send the police. The police are overused and we are... And, and the consequence of that is that, you know, things like natural disasters, things like the pandemic, things like people's mental health episodes turn into criminal processes. People get arrested, people get charged, people get, get fines. So that's, you know, you can't police your, your way out of a pandemic or out of a society that doesn't have enough mental health workers or a, a society where, where women are mistreated in relationships. The police aren't the solution to that and in many ways they're perpetuating it. Yes, it turns out when you have a $4 billion hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You have been listening to Queering the Air at 3CR Community Radio. What you just heard audio from the No Police at Pride LGBTQ Community Forum held at Hair Hall in Nam, Melbourne, last Thursday, 27th of October, 2022. So speakers featured include Frank Garfar, Dylan O'Hara, Paul Kidd and facilitator... Joshua Batch. You can keep in touch with No Police at Pride at nopoliceatpride.com. You can also donate to their fundraising um, event at nopoliceatpride.com. So you can also find all those details on our Querying the Air at 3CR website and also with the podcast. Thank you and have a good night.